Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We are about to go against the grain for the next couple of hours, but not going to go so far against the grain that we're not going to be talking a lot about what is obviously the biggest story of the day. Yep. Might even hold on for more than 24 hours, yep. although we'll see. I think see. it will. We'll see what the next thing uh, is. But yeah, Politico's bombshell last night reporting on what appears to be a leaked draft opinion on the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, the case of Mississippi's proposed 15-week abortion ban. And of course, since the court agreed to hear the case, and certainly since there were uh, arguments made on both sides, people have been warning that Roe versus Wade genuinely could be overturned through it. And if this leaked draft represents the final opinion that we will get, I forget if it was supposed to be in spring or summer, so a few weeks at most a few months, that is exactly what will happen. The decision would overturn Roe. It would overturn the 1992, I believe, Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision mm-hmm. that Correct. sort of um, uh, allowed a, a few restrictions, but also sort of codified elements of, of Roe. As Justice Samuel Alito writes in the draft, if it is legitimate and the consensus seems to be that it is, that the court would be deciding it is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives, which doesn't sound so bad. Right. If the people's elected representatives actually do the will of the people, you know, and there are a lot of political reasons why that doesn't happen. But certainly that is not the case in this instance. If you look at the number of states who have, um, you know, tr- trigger laws set to yes. to be launched the instant that Roe is overturned. States. Yeah. And, you know, Forbes helpfully collated a bunch of recent polling on abortion. We've mentioned some of these polls before, but Gallup polls show American support for abortion in all or most cases at 80 percent in May 2021, which would mean that it should still remain legal. Uh, Pew Research Center found that 59 percent of adults believe abortion should be legal. Pretty consistently, a majority of Americans, around 60 percent, say abortion should be legal in all or most cases situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gallup also found the share of Americans who say abortion is morally acceptable had reached a record high of 47 percent in May. Uh, That was up from a low of 36 percent back in 2009. Interesting to see that people are able to say to separate, you know, what they think is their uh, perhaps religiously imposed moral obligation from what they think a government should impose on its citizens. Hooray for them. Uh, the strongest support for abortion is abortion within limits. And this is a problem I'm going to get into with with one of our guests. Like, yes, public opinion holds it, it, is, it is steadily. You have a majority of Americans saying they think abortion should be legal. It, do, it goes up and it goes down. But it's it's always a majority, at least in, in recent. I mean, pretty much since 1972. Right. Um, however, uh, they also overwhelmingly support uh, some limits. They overwhelmingly, even people who disapprove of abortion also overwhelmingly support abortion where uh, the woman's life is in danger, sure. where there's uh, rape or incest. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the child will be born with a life-threatening, life-threatening disease, these are like overwhelming majorities, 74% being the minimum. But uh, it is also true that m- most Americans believe uh, abortion should be illegal at some point. Right. Right. With, like, with the minority like you of people. Can't be- 
eight months pregnant and then decide you don't want to have the child and then go in and have an abortion. That, right. Very that, that's where the polls begin to change. But you're exactly right. A clear majority in some cases of yeah. a vast majority of Americans believes in a woman's right to choose. Yeah. Yeah. Very few people uh, approve of that, but it also isn't happening. No, you know? so no. This you is can the count thing. on two hands the number of times this happens mm-hmm. every year. But in our, it is interesting that there are current the current legal protections, or as long as they're going to exist for for abortions, have seem to have a lot of trouble with the idea of a limit. That once you impose a limit, then you sort of open the door to saying actually not at all. Right. And I'm going to ask our legal scholar a little bit later in this first hour what that means. Yes. But so of course, you know, people are are uh, quite correctly extremely uh, upset about this. Um, well, you know, just before we we started the show, just moments before we started the show, I got a push notification saying that um, that uh, the chief justice, uh, John Roberts, Supreme Court chief justice, said that he was shocked and disgusted by the leak, not by the decision, by the leak, and that this was a betrayal. It was unprecedented and that he had launched an inquiry. It's funny to me that Julian Assange is condemned when he releases information or WikiLeaks releases information. But when somebody inside the Supreme Court leaks information, it's in the public interest, it's a public service, all the networks, literally all the networks run with it. Yep. No, this is exactly something worth worth contemplating because, again, you have this. This was a leak. I don't see any suggestion that this was stolen, but it was a leak from a, uh, you know, a a rarefied public institution. You know what I mean? One that commands people. Also, people are calling for it to be abolished, but, you know, has historically commanded a great deal of respect, relies a a great deal on protocol, maintains uh, this sort of fiction of of, uh, being nonpartisan, being nonpolitical. They're simply so they sit up on Mount Olympus and they issue these uh, these opinions. And historically, that that secrecy has been respected, although this this is not without precedent. Yeah. But yeah, across the board, mainstream outlets decided, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, this is leaked from a, a sensitive institution whose whose decision making processes normally we would want to respect. But this is in the public interest mm-hmm. and it is journalism to report on it and share it. And so, yeah, it's it's worth reflecting on what gets that treatment and what doesn't yes. and whether you think those lines are drawn in the right place. And the information was so shocking when it came out last night that. You know, the knee-jerk reaction was just report it. Mm-hmm. This is what the Supreme Court's going to do. In the coming days, I think we're going to see much more thoughtful analysis about what it all actually means. Because these polls that you cited, mm-hmm. you know, there are, there are human beings behind these polls. There are American voters behind these polls. And the question, I think, is are people going to be upset enough or angry enough to take out that anger um, in the midterm elections. So in the coming weeks, we need to pay close attention to what the polls are telling us. I mean, and again, you know, I wonder how many times Democrats can be saved by yeah. the other side being the even bigger monster. Yeah. You know, because it's always we're always told that this is why yes, you needed to elect right. Hillary Clinton so you could ha- fill the Supreme Court. But nobody liked Hillary Clinton. No. She was a terrible candidate. Terrible. They shouldn't have pushed her on us. Yep. But again, what did Americans do in 2020? Mm-hmm. They put a Democrat in the White House. They gave him a majority Democratic House. 
and a slim majority in the Senate. Senate. Yep. And we have not seen legislation passed that would protect this, uh, that would protect the, you know, the right to an abortion. No. Even as everyone was going, hey, Roe is going to be overturned. I know it seems unthinkable, but it is. And, you know, maybe it does rest on maybe it does rest on dubious legal footing, whatever you think of the, uh, you know, women's right to bodily autonomy on solid legal footing in the intervening 50 years. How many times can they say we're the only ones who can save you, but then not save you? Yes. They do the same thing with immigrants and the right to, you know, so again, I don't want to be a nihilist here, but yeah. Bernie Sanders said that this morning. He said, look, if if we're going to be the party that stands up for a woman's right to choose, we need to do away with the filibuster today and pass legislation to protect that right to choose. And, you know, that's never going to happen. It's just not. I mean, it could have. You remember I mean, in 2009. I, well, I don't want to just say, yeah, I hope it would happen. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know. You remember in 2009 when the Democrats had... 60 seats or 61 seats in the Senate once uh, Arlen Specter switched parties. And they they spent everything they had on Obamacare, which is great. I'm glad we have Obamacare as an option. But then that was it. They yeah. just walked away from every other controversial issue. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, how long how long can you promise to do things and not do them or say we are the we That's are the right. guardians of X, Y and Z population or X, Y and Z. Right. But actually just sort of thrash around and let the Joe Manchins of the yeah. party dictate your your direction. Precisely. I'm not sure how long I'm not sure how long you should be able to do that. I we agree. are going to talk about other things over the course of the show. We're going to talk yeah. a little bit about um, China what China is maybe considering doing to protect some of its assets from a possible trigger of uh, sanctions like the ones that Russia is has incurred. Uh, and also what it would mean to decouple chi- the Chinese economy and Western economies and whether See, you I know, don't think that's possible. We right. talk about that. Not not we, you and I, but I mean, people <laughs> journalists down on this yeah. topic all the time. <laughs> journalists talk about this all the time. Mm-hmm. I think that our economies are so intertwined now where mm-hmm. the Chinese have something like three trillion dollars worth of U.S. Treasury Department debt. Um, and, you know, China is by far our largest trading partner. Uh, I I just don't think that we could launch an economic war against China like we have with Russia um, and and get away with it. It will crash our own economy. No, I mean, we're maybe not getting away with it already with Russia. Yeah. You know, and China would be a much bigger deal. So we are going to talk about, you know, what that could look like. We are going to also get into Disney versus DeSantis. Yes, we will. Uh, which I think is going to be pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, we had a couple other stories we wanted to talk about before we break, though. I mean, I just the Met Gala was last night, John. Uh, I've looked at some of the dresses you know, already. I, I wasted three minutes and 28 seconds of my life today looking at the New York Times video mm-hmm. of the red carpet. And I wanted to reach into the screen and smack some of these people. I will say I do love looking at a beautiful dress. I, l- I like my fashion blogs. But it did feel kind of appropriate to have the Met Gala underway as a lot of other people were freaking out about this leak from the Supreme Court, right? Like a pretty illuminating contrast between the people who will be affected by this decision and the people who won't who won't have to care because yes. their wealth insulates them. Yes. And it's probably, I mean, the only thing worth saying really is on this the gala is is probably about this trend of using your outfit to make a political statement yeah. at the Met. 
Uh, like and, Mary, Eric Adams. Yes. Oh, he was like, one I wanted to smack. For sure. Eric Adams shows up. He's got a jacket that has end gun violence on the back. And it's like, buddy, you're the mayor. You're the mayor of a city that has a police budget bigger than the military budgets of, of many countries. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. You have a platform already. You have power already. You can call up anybody you want to get a, a thoughtful, well-researched opinion on gun violence and how to end it. The, the bully pulpit is yours. You don't need to draw more awareness to the issue. No. You are in a position to try to do something about it. And it's really offensive to me. You know, the, the appropriation of the language of activism is very offensive to me by people who can do something about it and just want to sort of uh, talk the talk. Yes, yeah, sloganeer. Uh, but this is the same thing. It's just it's just gross, right? You're not like, you know, there are some people who I get it. If, you, if you're like an animator and you drew a little animated film and for some reason it took off and you get you, you get literally five minutes of fame at the Oscars. And you want to raise the plight of like the the wood thrush in your in your local forest or whatever, <laughs> something that isn't going to get attention. That is your opportunity. Go for it. But if you are the executive, right, like Justin Trudeau marching in that climate march, right. get out oh, of here. Offensive. That is your literal your job. That is your job. You could go and do it and have an impact. It's just embarrassing. Before we get to our our guest, there yeah. was another uh, thing in the news, another story in the news that I thought was important. Saudi Arabia's former intelligence chief, that's Prince Turkey al-Faisal al-Saud, told Reuters yesterday that Saudi Arabia feels let down, those were the words he used, by the United States in tackling security threats to the kingdom and to the wider peninsula region by the Houthis mm-hmm. of Yemen. Turkey al-Faisal told an English-language Riyadh-based newspaper, the Arab News, Quote, I have the quote here. Saudis consider the relationship as being strategic, but feel as being let down at a time when we thought that America and Saudi Arabia should be together in facing what we could consider to be a joint, not just irritant, but danger to the stability and security of the area, unquote. What the Saudis apparently don't understand, though, is that you cannot kidnap a Washington Post journalist, murder him, chop him up into pieces and then throw him down a well and think that there aren't going to be any consequences. I normally give a nod to Realpolitik. I like to think that I'm a realist and I understand how the world works, but Saudis need to be humbled. And I look forward to the day, as former Congressman Hamilton Fish once said, where the Saudis can drink their oil because we just don't need them anymore. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, I I absolutely agree. I also think it is a shame that the outrage has to come, uh, you know, in the, 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 over the murder of one, uh, Washington Post reporter. Yeah. And not uh, how many thousands, exactly. Yeah. Children. Yemeni children. Right. Or even, you know, dissidents within Saudi Arabia. Yes. Or women within Saudi Arabia. Right. right? But, but, you know, however it comes, it, it won't be too soon. That is right. Well, we're going to get to our our first guest. That's going to be Dr. Kenneth Surin. In just a moment, we're going to take a short break. In the meantime, you're listening to Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. As we mentioned at the top of the show, a dramatic leak from the U.S. Supreme Court says that the court will likely set aside the seminal Roe versus Wade decision and will allow states to restrict or to ban abortion. This decision will have far-reaching religious, political, and social ramifications, and we intend to talk about all three of those today. We're joined by Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst and professor emeritus of literature and professor of religion and critical theory at Duke University. Dr. Surin, welcome back. A pleasure. Oh, the pleasure's ours. Thank you. This Supreme Court uh, uh, leak is extremely rare. Some newspapers this morning are calling it unprecedented and uh, using a colloquialism, the, the Chief Justice blew his stack this morning. Uh, the fallout of the decision, whatever the final vote happens to be, and it looks like it's going to be five to four or six to three, is going to be profound. So let's talk for a minute about the impact of banning abortion on religious freedom. Certainly, evangelical Christians and a lot of Catholics are happy today. But what about adherence to faiths that permit abortions, like Muslims and Jews, or those Americans who um, who are not evangelicals or Catholics? Uh, many of us feel that if you don't like abortion, then don't get an abortion. But what about people who want and need an abortion but will be prevented from getting one is is there anywhere they can turn legally based on the issue of religious freedom or have we arrived at a place where that just isn't going to matter well i'm not a legal expert um and uh, the arguments here are rather tricky and convoluted um i think that um in the end, uh, the person who wrote uh, the opinion, Justice Alito, uh, who is an originalist, uh, basically said this area is not covered by the Constitution, uh, this area meaning abortion. Uh, but that could also extend in the future to contraception. Um, Alito argued that um, as an originalist, nowhere in the Constitution is a right of privacy guaranteed. So um, using that um, uh, way of thinking, um, you could say, uh, for example, that nowhere in the Constitution does it say you can't drive your Ferrari at 200 miles an hour. Now, Extending that to the, argu uh, the argument about abortion, it seems to be that Alito says, well, uh, the, uh, the question of abortion is not covered by the Constitution, um, and therefore that allows um, legal thinkers like Alito a certain amount of leeway when it comes to consideration of banning abortion. Um, well, you know, I think that thinking is specious. Um, it is an infringement of, of freedoms. There is little doubt about that. Um, professors uh, as distinguished as Lawrence Tribe have argued that it is, um, and uh, I, I really can't see it 
being carried through um, when it comes to a final vote. Uh, Justice Roberts has not declared his position, the Chief Justice Correct. has not declared his position on this. Um, and there will be tremend- a tremendous amount of pushback on this. For example, uh, Susan Collins, uh, the habitual fence sitter, who is a Republican senator, said that when she had her pre-vote meeting with Justice Kavanaugh, um, he, she pressed him on the issue of abortion, and he gave her assurances uh, that abortion is settled law. Uh, I quote the phrase settled law, and that therefore um, he would not vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And it looks as though that's exactly what he's done. Um, I think there would be, there are already protests outside the Supreme Court. Um, I think they're going to walk this one back. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, I think you might be in the minority. Of, I, 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 I hope so. Although it's, it's possible. Yeah, sure. Uh, and the Washington Post said this morning that there are usually multiple um, uh, versions of of the decision. So the person that the that the uh, chief justice assigns to write the majority opinion writes the opinion. It's circulated. This happens something like three or four times. People change their opinions. They change their views. And, you know, the Supreme Court is a very political body. There are trades that take place. You give me your vote on this issue. I'll give you my vote on that issue. And I think Dr. Surin's right. Um, I hope he's right anyway. Um, It's possible that this thing could actually flip if the vote really is five to four. As he said, we don't know where Chief Justice Roberts uh, stands. But if the vote really is five to four and over the course of debate concerning the drafts, somebody flips then, you know, anything Roberts, can happen. Again, I, you know, I don't want to pretend I'm the, the uh, I have the greatest depth of knowledge on sort of Supreme Court wonkery. But Roberts is, it has been pointed out in a lot of reporting, has been kind of uh, trying to straddle a fence, yes. right? Clearly uh, yes. not, not excited about the prospect of overturning Roe v. Wade, but trying to find a way to uphold uh, further limitations like this 15-week ban. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely possible. Dr. Cern, can a decision to ban abortion be interpreted as as religion interfering in policymaking? Uh, the decision that's allegedly been written by Samuel Alito will say that nowhere in the Constitution does it say that anybody has a right to privacy, let alone a right to abortion. But isn't a decision to ban abortion an example of religion inappropriately being used to formulate policy? Well, uh... You know, I think they will sidestep this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are meaning Alito uh, by saying that the issue uh, is determined by precepts relating to the right to life, uh, and that right. that is uh, of such a generality that precept of such a generality that it transcends religion. So that is the argument that he will make. But at the same time, we know that the proponents uh, behind uh, a decision like Alito's, if it in, in fact becomes a decision, uh, are 
religious uh, are, are people from uh, religious backgrounds, evangelicals and conservative Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We we were having a conversation here in the studio uh, before the show started about how the Democrats have had ample opportunity multiple times over the last 50 years to to codify nationally a, a right to choose. They had a supermajority uh, in the in the Senate as recently as 2010, and they chose not to do anything to protect a woman's right to choose. Uh, Politically, do you expect the Democrats to respond to this, or do they just declare uh, a loss and and move on? Well, I think they have to respond to this. Um, uh, A great many uh, educated women um, who have strong concerns about preserving Roe v. Wade um, support the Democrats uh, precisely on this issue. And um, if they go ahead with this, uh, the Supreme Court, that is, uh, before the November elections, um, they will be all held to pay by the Democrats. So I think that they really have to get off the fence on this one. Biden already has. Yes. Um, and I, uh, I think the majority of the, uh, of the Democratic Party will, will follow Biden on this one. A Florida Republican state senator by the name of Ileana Garcia said this morning, uh, well, it was so ridiculous, I, ha- I just had to raise it. She said this morning that a ban on abortion would help to end human trafficking because nobody would want to traffic a pregnant woman or a pregnant girl, and they would be more likely to be released or to escape if they were pregnant. This sounds insane to me, but I'm not an expert on human trafficking. Uh, Can you give me your thoughts? Is there any upside to this? Well, uh, neither am I an expert on um, human trafficking, but this is completely insane. Um, we know that drug that um, human traffickers uh, basically go by the price that they they are paid, um, and I don't think that um, legal niceties uh, such as the one in her fantasy will uh, uh, will affect their decision making. Um, if they are paid a gazillion bucks to traffic uh, person X or Y, they will do That's it. That's right. Um, the, the the price will outweigh. Uh, the risk. So she's she's living in cloud cuckoo land. <laughs> I thought so too. I thought so too. I I want to ask you a question that I'm also going to ask a, a guest that we have uh, later in the show. Twenty five states have these uh, trigger laws that are sort of just waiting for the Supreme Court to make its final decision. That would then be. Um, either partial or complete bans on abortion, uh, states like Mississippi and Alabama, Texas, uh, Idaho, etc. There are six or seven states that don't have any abortion laws at all on the books, which was a real surprise to me. Um, New Hampshire, for example, Pennsylvania, um, New Mexico. And then there were three that were a surprise, Montana, Montana, Kansas and Nebraska. Uh, 
does this fight now go to the states where, you know, we saw Governor Gavin Newsom this morning saying that he's going to seek to amend the California Constitution to guarantee a woman's uh, right to choose. Uh, But what about these six states that don't have any laws at all? Does the fight now move there? Well, uh, gosh, you better ask a legal expert. (laughs) question. Um, And I hope the person that you will talk to later in your show uh, will be able to put some light uh, on this issue. Um, You know, that's going to be an almighty debate uh, about this, uh, not just the states that you mentioned. Um, uh, But, you know, I think that even in states like Mississippi uh, and Alabama, uh, which have uh, the uh, the trigger legislation that you referred to, um, they are, um, there's going to be a huge amount of debate um, in those states, uh, as well as the seven states that don't have it uh, on their statute. So I think the pushback, of course, it'll be at varied levels, um, because, you know, some states are quite obviously um, vastly uh, Republican in their majorities. Um, and then there will be states like New Hampshire, et cetera, et cetera, which are much more liberal. And uh, the pushback will be uneven, but it'll exist across the board, I think. Let's ask, uh, or let's, let's move on to some fun uh, issues. Uh, Andrew Fahey, who is the premier of the British Virgin Islands, was arrested while boarding a private jet in Miami last week. Uh, This was a Drug Enforcement Administration sting operation. Fahey allegedly was in Miami to meet with Mexican drug cartel members who were actually undercover DEA agents. Uh, The criminal complaint says that he thought the drugs on the plane belonged to Lebanese Hezbollah and that he was going to help distribute these drugs around the Caribbean. Fahey is claiming that he has diplomatic immunity in the United States and should be released immediately. But diplomatic immunity, of course, doesn't apply when you're not on an accredited diplomatic list and you're on a private visit. Besides, DEA in the past has successfully prosecuted the former premier of the Turks and Caicos Islands, which I didn't know until I I read it this morning. And, of course, former Panamanian uh, strongman Manuel Noriega. Uh, Is there any hope for Fahey? I I mean, what happens when you're a a head of whatever he is, head of government, I guess he is, um, premier of a British uh, Commonwealth member, and uh, he's involved in a in an international cocaine smuggling operation. Well, you know, uh, I'm not a legal expert, but Faye certainly isn't. Um, if he's distributing uh, an illegal substance, uh, I think the law would say that it doesn't matter whether it's on behalf of the Vatican or Hezbollah uh, or <laughs> whatever cartel it is that he is acting on behalf of. Um, so I don't think he doesn't have. I think he doesn't have a, a, a legal leg to stand on using the uh, uh, the, the Hezbollah uh, pseudo justification. Um, as to the rest, you know, uh, Turk and I mean the um, British Virgin Islands. Um, I don't think that the British government is going to. Uh, Stand behind the prime minister. 
um, because there's a separate concern where Britain is concerned, um, namely uh, that uh, the British Virgin Islands um, is a major uh, tax haven. Right. Um, and there are many illegalities that have been uncovered in recent months, uh, primarily to do with Kremlin oligarchs using tax haven facilities in the British Virgin Islands to sequester their wealth there. So um, the British government is uh, fighting a battle on that front, uh, adding this battle to uh, the battle about uh, dodgy tax haven practices uh, will mean that the British government is just going to say to the Americans, I strongly suspect um, you go ahead and deal with this mm -hmm. government. Mm -hmm. so this government is not going to be a problem, I think, because the offense, uh, at least its detection, was an American soil. I think American legal provisions will apply, and he, uh, he will just be dealt with by the Americans as they see fit. And there are different kinds of, of uh, diplomatic immunity. I mean, real diplomatic immunity, you have to be accredited to a country and you have to appear on the diplomatic list in that country's Ministry of Foreign Affairs to have full diplomatic immunity. There's there's uh, consular immunity if you're you're married to someone who has diplomatic immunity. There is um, transactional uh, immunity. He doesn't have any of these. Not only was he here on a visit, in which case the only immunity he would have would be you know, if he were speeding or went through a red light or something like that. Um, but he, he was here as a, as a private citizen. And not only that, he was here as a private citizen with the intent to break the law. And so I think it's disingenuous for him to say that he has immunity and should be released uh, immediately. Kind of a fun story to watch anyway. One more question for you, Professor. Ukrainian President Zelensky said today that Vladimir Putin had warned Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban in advance of the invasion of Ukraine. And he described Orban as an enemy of Ukraine and said that Orban wants to take a part of Ukraine to create a greater Hungary. Now, we, we've heard rumors about this kind of, uh, of uh, policy for a long time. But even the Financial Times says today that Orban has lost the trust of his European neighbors. Uh, do you think that's true? Is there anything to this? Does Hungary actually covet Ukrainian territory? Well, uh, you know, on that, I think you have to ask someone who is more fully cognizant of goings on in Hungary than I am. Uh, but on the matter of Orban alienating uh, his fellow EU members, um, you know, that has been very clear. The EU is on the verge of imposing sanctions on Hungary, uh, not on, on this issue, not on anything relating to Ukraine, but on the fact that Orban has completely corrupted the independence of Hungary's judiciary. Aha. Uh -huh. And there, there are requirements uh, in EU protocols uh, pertaining to the independence of the judiciary. So I think that what's more likely to happen, uh, rather than, uh, if you like, um, the EU taking action on something as nebulous as Hungary's, as Hungary's designs on a part of the Ukraine, 
that the sanctions re- relating to the independence of the Hungarian judiciary uh, will be uh, brought to the forefront. And uh, if, if this is a big if, uh, because concerted action on the part of all EU members uh, cannot be taken for granted. Uh, for example, Poland's judiciary uh, is also lacking independence, uh, but because Poland is a staunch ally uh, when it comes to taking on Putin over the Ukraine, uh, the EU will probably step back from taking action on Poland, uh, but at the same time press on with action on, on Orban. Um, but I think this is this is. This is going to be a matter of considerable debate in the EU. Uh, But if Orban really uh, indicates that he has designs on a part of Ukraine, then the EU uh, simply has to step in and impose sanctions on him. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst and professor emeritus of literature and professor of religion and critical theory at Duke University. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, getting now into some more of the legal, social, and potential political fallout if indeed we are looking ahead to the end of Roe versus Wade, the end of that precedent. Joining us for this conversation is Kim Keenan. She's adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel of the NAACP. Kim, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, as always. So I want to not apologize, but I want to sort of talk, do a little bit of dry-ish legal conversation before we get to some of these uh, social effects. And it's not in order of importance. It was just the way I managed to outline this this conversation and my questions. Uh, So we've talked about some aspects of of this, uh, the ramifications of the leak, if indeed this is the opinion that we get in a couple of weeks. And I want to ask you, about the legal reasoning in this draft opinion. Because if I understand it correctly, Justice Alito says, look, Roe's use of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment says it implies other rights not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, but deeply rooted in American history and tradition, and then says, look, abortion has no such deep legal roots. And of course, you know, it it would be comic to imagine that women in America have not been receiving and performing abortions since before the nation was even an idea. But that doesn't mean uh, that they are necessarily like part of the American national tradition. And so I guess I wonder, you know, is it is it actually true? Is it actually sort of a dirty little secret that Rose reasoning was was not actually that great? And really, we, we should have had stronger protections for abortion all along, maybe legislative protections. Well, you know, I'm always a little nervous when people say deeply rooted in American history and tradition. Mm-hmm. The 
part, this is the phrase that should make people nervous, because if it has to be deeply rooted in American history and tradition, there are no rights for women. Mm-hmm. Lord knows as a black woman, I'm I'm not even on the right scale. Um, so, you know, if it has to be deeply rooted and actually stated precisely in the Constitution that was really only written by white men. Not a, This is not me um, detracting from the wonder that this document is. It's a wonderful document for governance, but it wasn't really created for everybody and for everything. And it certainly wasn't created to give women rights and control over their body. So for him to start talking about that, you know, that these implicit rights, I mean, that was that was jurisprudence trying to find a way to connect those rights. Right. Because they are rights that if if we had had if you had women and men putting together a document, you know, who recognize that some stuff might come up that we don't talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. They would have probably made a way for this. But if you just got, you know, right, if there's only a room full of men talking about this, mm-hmm. whether a woman should be able to do this or not was probably something that didn't come up. Mm-hmm. I'm always nervous about this deep rooting in our history. Our history and traditions are not always very good. Mm-hmm. So some of them maybe shouldn't be deeply rooted. And, you know, as John and I were talking earlier, and I, we were talking about sort of the religious angle of this, it's also some of this is, you could say, there's this idea that somehow America has been this uh, deeply and sort of fundamentally Christian nation since its founding, which is also really at odds with history, right? A bunch of the founders were deists, you know, like, so it it is sort of going, trying to go back and manufacture, manufacture a past that maybe wasn't the reality. And when you look at the reality, there's a lot, there's a lot that is deeply rooted in American history and tradition that I would not want to see, you know, uh, revived, let's say. That's exactly right. We, you know, and I think you're right. We haven't, we haven't been at a point in history where we kind of went back and reanalyzed it with that lens. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always been these people who say, well, if it's not in the Constitution, it doesn't exist. But we recognize that if we just went with that, then, you know, only men would be voting to this day. Mm -hmm. And obviously that would not be a workable democracy. So um, I do think that there was um, there is some wordsmanship and how you get to these places. And that legislation is always better Mm -hmm. because it can be clarified. If it's not clear, it can be made to uh, pass constitutional muster. Um, But I do think that upending and I can't wait till we talk about the leak because I'm, I, I, as a lawyer, I just want you to know I'm deeply disturbed mm-hmm. about the leak. Well, I, go tell us about. Oh what, yeah, I'd love what, to hear it. Go on, get into it. We can, you know, we we don't have to keep to any particular order. What what is so disturbing to you about this leak? Okay, so. I don't know about you guys, but you cover everything and you guys are on top of everything. When's the last time you covered a Supreme Court leak? Never. Yeah, exactly. Never? Yeah, never. Not at all. None. No. Zero. One of the rare times when you can say it has never been done until now. And, um, you know, what, what, uh, what a degradation of our highest court that someone, for whatever reason, I don't care what side they're on, I don't care if they're pro or against or for or not for, what they have done is such a slap at the branch of government that really 
what's going to be our last hold on trying to really do the things the way they're supposed to be done. Although, you know, obviously now it's just politicized. Now we've made it just like Congress or, you know, just like the presidency, where where it's your one side or the other, you know, we're going to politicize even the decisions. It is so wrong. I clerked, I worked for a judge, um, not in the Supreme Court, but in the U.S. District Court, the trial court, and the betrayal, the, you know, you know, part of the reason why we have such, if you will, reverence for that court is because we don't get to see the little skirmishes and how they got there. And, you know, we don't get to see the secret sauce, which, you know, sometimes that's just not a good thing to mm-hmm. see how the sauce was made. We don't know that somebody might not change their mind or that, that the analysis might change or that, the you know, now that the words are being sent out into the universe, like I said, this deeply rooted in American history and tradition. I mean, mm-hmm. really, what tradition are they talking? Which tradition? Which one do you want it to be? Let me ask you, what do you think is so like, why? What would the implications be of, you know, if, if some if a justice does change his or her mind, right? And this opinion is not the one that we get in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, whenever uh, the final opinion is issued, you know, does d- I don't know. Does does this leak and this sort of showing this early draft? Uh, what is what are the implications of this? I guess. And do you think they're not getting not getting enough attention? You know, if if a justice does change his or her mind, are are they going to have to go back and then sort of justify? Oh, well, you you know, we we assumed you were on this side when we saw this draft. What changed your mind? Who got to you? What political games are you playing? Are we sort of opening up a, a can of worms of questioning justices' decisions? And and that's what the problem is here. Yeah, I mean it's going to be a, it's going to be all that and more. Mm-hmm. Because think about it, if you if if you're on this draft and let's just say you didn't, let's say you you you, you said I'm leaning this way and they put your name in as a placeholder, although, you know, given who the people are, I don't know that that would be true. Or it could be a way of outing them. It could be a way of, um, you know, outing the people who aren't on this side. I mean, it it could, it could mean so many different things. But in the end, None of them have to do with the ultimate outcome. They they are the deciders because they're the highest court that we have. And when we start to be able to nitpick, well, you see, this is how he thinks. Okay, so now we know something mm-hmm. that really isn't a part of a final decision. We know something about a thought process, and it and it and it shows. It really shows that now we're going to take a shot at our third branch. You know what I'm saying? We don't, you don't normally get these kinds of, I mean, you know, except for the confirmation hearings, you don't really, you don't really, it's not often that you're on the radio talking about, you know, look what they're doing over there. They're about, yeah. and you don't get this kind of press. Right. You don't, we don't get a two month heads up on how something I mean, you, you could read the tea leaves if you yeah. said to me, do I think they're going to roll back? Uh, yes, of course. I think the tea leaves say yes, they are. But you but you have to keep in mind in the context of reality. Now we're talking full blown overturning this, giving it back to the states. There are a lot of states who will handle this well. There are a lot of states who will not handle this well. And um I think ultimately there is going to have to be a law um, on the federal level, but people just don't realize how many ways this is going to affect day-to-day life. And, I, and like you said, you know what? There are there have always been women who had who chose to make this mm-hmm. outcome. Mm-hmm. 
And telling people that they can drop their babies off, no questions asked. I, I'm not sure what part of America that happens in. Um, I'm sure no. that. Yeah. It, but I'm, I don't think it's a common thing. Okay. Well, so I think, I think that if you go through nine months and you've been, you've been, you know, you've been tickled by this, you know, baby, you're, you're not just going to be like, you know what? I still think it was wrong, but I, I didn't want to hurt a life. I'm just going to drop the baby off. Yeah, there may be women like that, but I don't think they represent the global body of women um, in America. And I think that it, it is unrealistic to tout solutions that really only apply in such a small number of instances. And I, I you know, we live well, in— Well, and also, Kim, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but that, like, th- that is the solution that's offered is outrageous. And I guess we'll come back to the, some of the legal stuff here. But, you know, maternal mortality rates in the United States are incredibly high for the developed world. You know, we've had other guests on here who say, like, w- when you were talking about giving birth in the U.S., the mother's—the the health of the mother, the health of the birthing person is— always in question. And when you talk about black women, that is the maternal mortality rates are even higher. So the burden being imposed by this decision uh, is potentially incredible. I also looked up some other statistics because I wanted to talk about these community impacts. I I saw today black women and black mothers have the highest labor force participation rates, Uh, though, of course, they also experience a pretty considerable wage gap. And, you know, we were talking about a society where maternity leave is basically non-existent, right? Health care is extremely expensive. Daycare costs are exorbitant, like daycare costs are approaching a a third or more of the average annual salary in this country. There's no state-supported afterbirth care. The cost simply of giving birth is outrageous. The costs of having a child are terrifying. And then you add the the, the physical risks, and then you add the disproportionate burden uh, that I think non-white communities would face with those risks. And yeah, you, you, you really raise like Pretty, pretty quick social upheaval, Kim. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I, 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 I think, and I thought you laid them out very nicely. Mm-hmm. And if I were making an argument in a court of law, I would be talking about all of these things. I would be saying, look, first of all, black women get probably the worst care mm-hmm. um, in America because not only do people treat them based on their conditions, but they also treat them based on their own personal biases. And that means sometimes you don't get the faster C-section or you, you, you know, you mm-hmm. might, I, I've met women and, and, and this is a true story. I've met women who were at 41 weeks and they're, they're going, Oh yeah, they said I should just wait. Who waits till 41? The baby's baked. What, <laughs> what are we waiting for to turn into something else? I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you that not only is it expensive, but it is in addition, it, the healthcare risks for, you know, women, women of all colors. Mm-hmm. I don't just mean to say black women, mm-hmm. women of all colors and women themselves, because women, regardless of your color, mm-hmm. don't get as good a health care as men of any color. Mm-hmm. And the stats definitely support that. Um, you know, it might it might be a little better, you know, if you're not as brown, mm-hmm. but it's still, you know, you can have an off day in any color if you're a woman. Yeah. And so I think that people are focused so much on preserving this life at the cost of the life that has to make it happen. I can't even imagine a world where they would do this to men. I think that's what I no. really 
so annoyed about. And it's, it's again, it, it's one of those things where the fact that we're even having this kind of discussion mm-hmm. shows that we really are deeply rooted in American history and tradition. And the tradition is that everyone is in charge of women except themselves. No, and I would really like to see some t- statistics about, you know, the number of uh, pregnancies that are lost due to a lack of um what is it? Uh, pregnancy health care, right? Due to a lack of, of pregnancy health care, due to a lack of, uh, you know, dr- drug rehab facilities or lack of mental health care. I would really like to see how those numbers stack up against the number of, uh, you know, abortions in this country when it comes to little lives being saved. Uh, because I think, you know, negligence is also <laughs> negligence is also a crime in some circumstances. Uh, I want to start coming back a little bit to some of these legal questions, Uh, in particular, people being pretty concerned about uh, the the longevity now of some other rights that have been recognized by this implied right to privacy that Roe has rested on, like (laughs) this is such a weird phrase to say, legalizing sodomy. So that ever should have been illegal in the first place. Just ridiculous. Uh, And also gay marriage. Right. Because in this opinion, Alito says. Uh, this decision is only about abortion and not anything else. But some other legal writers have been saying, look, he he is talking about precedent that is pre Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And these decisions uh, are, are not necessarily that. So I wonder if you think this would be basically a free for all on uh, kind of the right to be gay in the United States. I think if you peel back abortion and you say that that amendment doesn't allow you to come out this way, then you also have to come back and say, you know, and I know they make a big deal of saying it's just this. Well, how is this different from that? Mm-hmm. If, the under, if the analysis is so awful, so bad, so innately horrible, then why is it OK to let it stand for those things? And I'm telling you what, the people who are on that side are saying, ha, mm-hmm going to get away with that we're coming for all of it they're coming for all of it mm-hmm. it is a free-for-all and it's not just a rollback it's an attack mm-hmm. and i think that we really you know people need to really be paying attention to this because you know every time you think it's over there then it's in your backyard right we're, we're worried we're worried about what's happened over there but it's over there it's over there it's not us i don't have these problems i'm not going to have any more babies i don't have to worry about but then hey it's right there in your backyard your brother is gay your cousin is gay your sister is gay and all of a sudden it's open season on them mm-hmm. when finally the ability to come out and be able to say this is who I am is is basically the reality everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's scary. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think that it's scary. And I, I, anybody who thinks they can just write, oh, it's just this and nothing else. I'm just pulling it back for this. But everything has to be rooted in our American traditions. Well, we already know the, the American tradition on this is no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kim, I want to I want to ask you another question, and I know we're going to have to break in the middle of your answer. So I'm going to introduce it here and then we'll we'll let that break go and keep you on. But I want to talk about this uh, problem of viability 
It seems, at least according to the reporting that we are looking at, uh, you know, this is a problem with Justice Roberts is kind of dancing around, right, where he seems reluctant to to want to fully overturn Roe, but trying to look for a way to uphold this 15 week ban uh, like the one in Mississippi, the, the one this specific case presents. And it is interesting to me because, you know, as John and I were talking about earlier in the show, there is a broad uh, majority public support for abortion, for abortion abortion in all cases or most cases. Uh, if you poll the American public, it goes up and down, but consistently it seems a majority and sometimes a you know pretty sizable majority, like two thirds, supports the right to an abortion. But they also support a cutoff around the time of viability. And it sort of seems like this has been difficult to address legally. And I wonder why that is the case. And I, I think it seems also pretty clear that this is something that legislation could handle a little bit better. And I wanted to get your your thoughts on why this why this sort of limitation seems so difficult. Yeah, I think I think everybody's dancing. I mean, remember now, these are all lawyers and they're dancing around with science. And mm-hmm. so the question becomes, you know, if the if the baby is viable, right, can live on its own, then then now are we infringing on their rights, mm-hmm. right? You know, when the, when the baby's an embryo, you know, it it you know, it's not a living. I mean, it's it's living, it's alive. I don't want to get in that discussion mm-hmm. with it, it is a living, but but it's not an orgasm that can an, um, an organism that can live on its own, mm-hmm. right? It's not something that can survive outside the host, mm-hmm. which is the mother. But but once we get to fifteen, you know, really what we're saying is after that first trimester, you know, if you were gonna if you if you really felt you didn't want to have the baby, you had enough time mm-hmm. to really say. Um, this is it for me. And I think Robert, I, I will say this about him. I think he, he recognizes that you can't turn a boat really fast. Mm-hmm. Right? They're trying to flip the boat over on this. And I think, I think, you know, it's like with anything, when you swing the pendulum too far, too fast, that the thing you intended to happen isn't what you wind up with. Mm-hmm. And I think by, by Robert's signaling that, you know, quote, why isn't, why isn't 15 weeks enough time? He's saying, you know what, maybe this is the line. Maybe it's Roe versus Wade 15 weeks. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like he, he's, he's, he's really trying to find a way to, to strike a balance. And I think the fact that public opinion is on the side, on, on the side of this, mm-hmm. you know, not, not just abortion, but abortion with some sort of cutoff, because I think, mm-hmm. Oh, Kim. Hey, Kim, let me interrupt you there because we have this hard break at 1 p.m., but we'll come back. We'll finish this question. I've got one more question to ask you about what states can do. We're going to come right back to continue this conversation about the SCOTUS leak with Kim Keenan. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, continuing our conversation with Kim Keenan, adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel of the NAACP. We were talking about why 
Uh, why this 15-week ban seems to be so difficult to deal with uh, when it comes to the law, it comes to, I guess, court decisions and whether it would be uh, easier to to enshrine something like that through legislation, through Congress. Kim, I, I invite you to finish that thought there. Given this posture and given this leak, it, it's time for legislation. And I, I, I think that the Congress is in the best position to, pre, to craft a law that takes these things into account. It's not like we don't have, you know, it's like one of these things where it's not like we don't have the legal minds to craft a document that, you know, allows a woman a full and unfettered choice while at the same time preventing abortions that are, you know, third, you know, third mm-hmm. trimester or second trimester, where there is some concern about the impact on both the fetus and the mother. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, without a federal law, we're going to get the states deciding on their own. And we already know where Mississippi is going to come out. Mm-hmm. We already know where Texas is going to come out and Arkansas and probably Indiana. Mm-hmm. And um, again, people do not realize, even in those places, that there, you know, this action is going to have some repercussions. And, you know, there, there are people who will always make the choice, this choice. Mm-hmm. And so rather than pretending like it doesn't happen or it's going to go away because you don't favor it as a solution um, is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And And I do think that by just literally trying to wipe it out, because, of course, there are people out there who want federal legislation that says no abortion ever, no matter what. So if you were raped, Suck it up, basically, is what they say. Mm-hmm. Yep. It is mm-hmm. so crazy. It is just so crazy. Um, and so I think that having a federal law, although it also depends on who those lawmakers are making that law, it could, it could, it could push the pendulum way right or way left. But I think this is one of the ones where the American people really have been clear and consistent in the recognition that, you know, this 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 is a choice. It shouldn't be unfettered, but certainly um, women should have the ability to do this and it shouldn't be uh, connected to actual words in the Constitution. I mean, that, that that's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you one last question, Kim. We, we were talking about this with our previous guest. You know, we've, we've mentioned the state's uh, who, you know, that will automatically move to restrict abortion. What would you say, to, you know, the California said they're they're going to change their constitution to enshrine the, the right to an abortion. I'm sure there would be other states who would try to take uh, similar, similar steps. <sighs> Obviously, that is a, a very, very, it's not a solution, right? It is a sort of limited uh, reprieve. Uh, but I wonder, you know, what what you would make of that, how robust some of those state protections would be uh, and what, what you think states could and should do as a response uh, to this. I think California has always shown that when it comes to the rights of their individual citizens, they're willing they're willing to go out on a limb, you know, to, to even go maybe further than they need to go sometimes. Um, but you'll have New York. New York will New York will have a very similar um, take on it. Maybe not go as far or make it as broad. I think the concern that I have is when 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 it's an issue like this that's clearly you know, a national issue when you have a patchwork of laws, right, mm-hmm. where, you know, I'm in Indiana. No, I'm in California. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it creates 
um, it creates something that makes us less of a holistic nation and more of a, you know, sort of individual nation states. And that's not what we intended to do. And that's why some things really are um, considered to be in the realm of federal law, which is why Roe v. versus Wade is the law of the land and not of, you know, states X, Y, and Z versus states A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. So I, think, mm-hmm. I think it's really important that, that states pipe up on this and say, you know, look, this is not going to be workable. And and I worry about the slippery slope. So what if you're a woman who doesn't take care of herself and, of course, the baby doesn't survive because you did every possible bad thing to yourself that you could? Mm-hmm. You, didn't, you didn't go and abort the baby, but, you know, that can't be great for you or the baby either. I, I really yeah. think that, you know, just taking this right away wholesale – um, in the context of 50 years of having it, it's, it's not as simple as people might think. Yeah. And, and I think that there are implications and repercussions that people are not thinking through fully. And that is that's what's really going to happen if, if in two, I'm sure it'll be two months now. Yeah. Um, if this opinion were to come out as it. And I mean, you know, we've got to let you go now. But, yeah, we're already seeing that happen. We're already seeing women, uh, you know, facing uh, legal consequences for things like having miscarriages. And, of course, that you know, those those are not applied across the board either. Right. You're not necessarily going to get uh, charged criminally charged for running a marathon and losing your baby. But if you do drugs and then you have a miscarriage, you know, that that's out there as a possibility now. So, yeah, it is it is chill. Uh, Kim Keenan, always appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. That was adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel of the NAACP, Kim Keenan. Thanks a lot. We are going to shift gears completely now. Completely. Completely, because we we do want to talk about some other topics than, of course, this big uh, Supreme Court leak. And one of the interesting things that has been going on uh, over the past week or so, uh, is uh, China looking at some of its pretty massive uh, overseas investments, uh, overseas assets, its foreign reserves, and thinking, huh, I wonder if these are a little more vulnerable than we would like them to be, and how can we protect them against a possible sanctions net like the one the United States has cast over Russia? And so joining us to get into what China might be doing and should be doing is John Ross. He's an author, an economist, and a senior fellow of the Chongyang Institute at Renmin University of China. John, thanks for joining us. Very pleased to be here. So uh, FT reported that Chinese regulators late last month held an emergency meeting with domestic and foreign banks to talk about how they could protect China's overseas assets from sanctions like the ones the U.S. and Europe have imposed on Russia following its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, China apparently has more than $3 trillion in foreign reserves overseas, including owning some of the world's most valuable overseas real estate. It owns a whole bunch of U.S. Treasury bonds, et cetera, et cetera. And so I wonder what what could and should China be doing to protect some of these assets and on what time frame? Well, the first thing is I'm absolutely sure is they're not going to publicly announce what they're going to do. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because that why give why give information to the enemy? Yeah. Right. Um, I the the most fundamental thing is that it means that really it doesn't just affect China. Mm-hmm. It means the United States has 
uh, violated the the only basis on which the dollar long term could be the basis of the international monetary system. Because basically, what having a dollar or a dollar holding like a treasury bond or anything else is, it's a promise. It's because it's a piece of paper. It has no meaning. Uh, it has no value itself. It says you will be allowed to purchase goods with this um, with this piece of paper, mm-hmm. and that's what gives it its meaning. Now, if you can then cancel that promise unilaterally, which is what the US has done with the case of Russia and the central bank, then this piece of paper um, is highly d- dangerous. Mm-hmm. Now, the first thing is um, – I, I personally do not believe it was a very good idea for China to build up such huge um, foreign currency reserves. Um, I think it would have been better to have uh, stimulated the domestic economy more, but that's in the past. They've got, they've got the money they've now, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what are they going to do about this situation? Well, the, the, the fundamental thing is you will have to transfer it into real assets. Mm-hmm. Um, because... If because that you understand that's what what's what paper money is. Paper money is a promise that you can change this piece of paper for something that has real value. Mm-hmm. Well, if the if the promise is no longer valid, then the only way to proceed is to turn it into real assets. Yeah. Now there are a number there are a number of things that could be done. One which still has a intrinsic value is gold. Um, I would imagine that there'll be a great deal of purchasing of gold going on by not merely China, but by other foreign banks. Mm-hmm. China, Russia, instantly has very large holdings of gold. Uh, but also other things. You can buy uh, commodities. You can buy um, uh, fit, anything which has a real value. So the fundamental principle will be to transfer money out of this holding the paper. It, it means that I would – assume if it's been sensible i have no secret information on this and as i say china will certainly not announce anything mm-hmm. uh, but it seems extremely um dodgy to hold you know well over a billion dollar a trillion dollars sorry of u.s treasury bonds for example mm-hmm. so i would think that the united states has just shot itself in the foot from the point of view of at least getting some countries to invest in u.s treasury bonds mm-hmm. but that that's some of the things which will be going on mm-hmm. Uh, You know, the question I have, though, is, I mean, this is all being presented as, you know, China looking to um, avoid getting, you know, experiencing what Russia is experiencing now. It's it's assets being assets by Russian citizens, let's say, being seized and liquidated. And it is interesting that the move suggested as one that might trigger sanctions is China attacking Taiwan. I don't know how imminent something like that actually is. Um, but really, the the biggest question I have is, is a person who FT spoke to and who talked about the this issue, this meeting, said the decoupling of the Chinese and Western economies will be far more severe than decoupling with Russia because China's economic footprint touches every part of the world. And the way that's phrased I, I don't know. It's, it seems to imply that that would be painful for China. But even right now in the short term, you know, uh, these sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on Russia have been pretty painful for the United States and Europe. And Russia in the short term really seems to be managing them. I feel like, you know, I'm not sure that we should really accept the premise that the U.S. and Europe are really in a position to economically isolate or punish China. I don't even know how that would be possible, let alone possible uh, without the, you know, making the United States and Europe uh, bear a lot more pain than China would. I I wanted to ask you about that, that premise. 
Yeah, certainly the, the, the carrying out the sanctions against Russia will impose considerable pain on the uh, population of, uh, of Europe, because uh, frankly, the, the amount of trade between Russia and the United States is very minimal, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why the United States can be so much in favor of sanctions. If you if you followed the United States, for example, and you had a um, an embargo on uh, Russian gas, for example, the, the European economy would go into a totally deep uh, recession. Mm -hmm. um, with a big fall in living standards, even substituting Russian gas over, let's say, over four or five years for American liquid uh, liquid uh, gas, which is what the United States wants, because mm -hmm. it wants to seize the European gas market from Russia, that will have reduced living standards in Europe because it will mean that the gas will be paid more for. Mm -hmm. Now, if you try to do that to China, the effect will be much greater. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that case, incidentally, the pain will be felt in the United States because the United States trade with China is very big, mm -hmm. unlike its trade with Russia. Um, already, American f households are paying several hundred dollars a year. Um, best calculation is about $800 a year in extra costs because of, because of the um, – the tariffs which um, Trump put on, I mean, it's really stupid. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got high inflation in the United States. One of the simplest ways to cut the inflation rate would be to get rid of the tariffs. Right. Uh, but, but, but Biden won't do that for political reasons. If you attempted to seriously decouple China and uh, the United States, the cost of living in the United States would go up very significantly mm -hmm. because it would then have to import an enormous range of goods from uh, much more expensive um, uh, places that are supplying them. So it would mean a big reduction in the living standards of the U.S. Uh, population. Mm -hmm. the, uh, that's why the U.S., the trade war between China and the United States has been totally won by China. Mm -hmm. uh, the, it's, a, it's a sort of humiliating defeat mm -hmm. uh, for the United States because actually China's exports to the United States have gone up. Mm -hmm. In this period, because because it would have to pay more, even with the tariffs in place, no nobody else in the world can produce um, particular ranges of manufactured goods, in particular at the at the price of China. So therefore, in order to carry out sanctions against uh, China, you would have to cut quite substantially the, the uh, living standards of the population of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Can I ask then, you know, if these trade wars are, are indeed a defeat for the United States and if these sanctions on Russia right now, you know, if not backfiring, are at least coming at quite a cost to, you know, the, the average American person. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to ask you to get into the heads of policymakers, but why continue? You know what I mean? Is it is it simply for is it inertia? Is it simply political gain? Is there something else we should be seeing that is in fact uh, gained from from these things it's you know beyond the sort of economic loss that you are describing for the united states like why why do we keep doing these things that only you know only shoot ourselves in the foot well no but that there's a difference between russia and china sure. the us is not shooting itself in the foot over russia mm -hmm. the united states is shooting europe in the foot okay yes over over russia so it doesn't suffer big pain from that mm -hmm. right therefore that they did that but the united states would suffer big pain from uh, sanctions uh, or tariffs um against china mm -hmm. so therefore that's why although the tariffs are unpleasant uh, for China, they're, they're they're stupid. China loses something as well. China's trade would go up even more. 
if there weren't for the tariffs, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, it can survive perfectly well without that, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the United States, it's uh, rather reticent to do anything about it because it will cut the living standards of the US. And that doesn't sound a very good move for Biden, mm-hmm. who's already unpopular. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the present time, due to the very high inflation rate in, in the US, cutting the running into the midterm elections and running into the next presidential elections, reducing the living standards of the American uh, population unnecessarily doesn't sound a very good political tactic mm-hmm, to me. Mm-hmm. Let me also ask you what, you know, forgive me if this is just a really basic question, but when you were talking about turning, you know, foreign reserves, uh, foreign currency reserves into real assets, gold was mentioned. But, you know, we we have the example of uh, Venezuela having its gold uh, reserves held in the Bank of London uh, seized, you know, and, and kept so far from from the Venezuelan people. And so I just wanted to ask why? Do forgive me if this is just the dumbest thing in the world that everybody should know. But like if you are going to start converting some of these, you know, paper assets into real assets, why would you leave them in foreign banks? Is there a good reason to have, a you know, a a billion dollars worth of uh, Venezuelan gold sitting in the Bank of London? Does it make it more accessible? Because it would seem to me to be pretty vulnerable, uh, you know, in in this sort of political context. So is there some reason that you would maybe start these conversions, but still leave them in, in foreign banks? Or would you be, you know, trying to bring some of these real assets home? Uh, Incidentally, basic questions are always the most important questions, (laughs) so don't worry about that. It's the superficial questions are what's not important. Mm -hmm. No, no, in a certain sense, I assume that Venezuela had some illusions. Mm -hmm. It might seem strange for a government that was previously led by Hugo Chavez Mm -hmm. and led by Maduro. Obviously, if you want to store large quantities of gold, you've got to have some serious storage facilities, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you can't sort of... Put it in a cupboard somewhere, mm-hmm. um, but and I, Venezuela presumably didn't construct them. But Russia and China are not that not in that position. Mm-hmm. They've got they can perfectly well have their security, and the gold reserves of Russia and China mm-hmm. will be held within Russia and uh, China. Uh, the difficulty is for other things. Yeah, you've got to have real assets which are on your own territory, mm-hmm. because the U.S. has shown it's perfectly capable of seizing physical assets which are um, outside. Yeah. Um, there's other things you can do instead. Also, you can just cut the Chinese balance. You could run the Chinese economy more rapidly, in which case its balance of trade uh, surplus will fall mm-hmm. because the it, it means that the economy will be running more rapidly, so it'll suck in more imports. Uh, and, and there are various things that you can you can do about this. Mm-hmm. So I'm just outlining what is the fundamental principle. Mm-hmm. What it's going to do to the U.S. over t- time is now. Previously, the move to get um, out of to de-dollarize the world economy was held by only a few countries, uh, but I think that this will now become a general trend. Now, countries will find it difficult to work out what to do, but I don't think it's only this is something unprecedented to seize the uh, reserves of a central bank. I don't think it's ever been done before. It's certainly not been done in any major to any country. So I don't think it's only China and Russia that will become concerned about this. It means any country which picks a, has a row with the United States is potentially vulnerable. This is a real uh, watershed moment. There's a very good article about this, incidentally, by a leading Chinese economist called Yu Yongding, who said, you know, China, uh, the United States has just overturned 
the whole basis of the international monetary system. And he's quite right. John, tell us a little bit about Chinese foreign policy with uh, Belt and Road and and the the base in Djibouti. Can you foresee a, a time in the near future when the Chinese carry out a more activist foreign policy? Well, it depends what you mean by activists. I don't think that China wants to establish large numbers of foreign military bases, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that China, you know, China's, China has a particular style. It, it doesn't engage in a great deal of shouting, etc., but it's just very resolute in what it does. I mean, if you want to contrast the style... The style which China doesn't do is the famous thing of Hugo Chavez at the United Nations when he said he could smell that the devil had been there before Mm -hmm. because the American president had been there. But I remember having a a discussion with the Charge d'Affaires in uh, Shanghai, in in, uh, Venezuela's Charge d'Affaires in Shanghai. He said, look, when when China launched the first satellite for Venezuela, the Americans did everything possible to try to stop it. Right up to the morning of the launch, China made no protests, no statements, but the satellite went up, which is which is what counts, of course. So China's style, China doesn't engage in bluffing uh, of that type. Uh, it's not; it's just not its style. It does; it says exactly what it's going to do. This, incidentally, is one of the things, of course, which affects Taiwan. The United States should not be under any illusion. You understand by Chinese law that if Taiwan declares independence, China will invade it. It it doesn't say it may invade it. It says it will invade it. Um, And I would take that to be totally China's position. So therefore, the United States is playing with fire um, on this issue. Um, China is not going to, for its own purposes, attack Taiwan. Uh, It's going to, because China knows it's going to get Taiwan peacefully at some point in time. But there is a dangerous tendency in the United States to try to do something which may provoke um, a conflict there. So I think China, in its own way, don't confuse style and content. China has a very activist foreign policy. It just has a somewhat different style to what you might call more flamboyant leftists, Mm. we may put it that way. Mm. I want to get into, uh, before we let you go, media censorship and and China in the United States. In the past month, there have been a couple of stories about how Chinese media is uh, is doing Russia's dirty work or that China is Russia's information war proxy. And if you've been paying attention in the U.S., a couple of years ago, there were a couple of reports that seemed like efforts to create a, a Russiagate-style panic about China, that, that China was attempting to influence U.S. elections through social media and had a network of spies trying to influence our policy, you know, s- some of which is certainly true. Uh, but, you know, not it, none of these stories really took off in the way that Russiagate did. Um, but, you know, you have The Washington Post pointing out the, the reach of Chinese media outlets and uh, noting that on Facebook, they have a combined total of over a billion followers. CGTN, Global Times, Xinhua News and, and Tea House alone have 283 million followers. That's just on one social media platform. Then you have actual TV and all their other platforms. And so I do wonder if if China is eventually going to be, uh, you know, face some of the same crackdown that Russian media has has faced in the United States and what the response would be from China if that were to happen. Well, I'm absolutely sure it will. I, I read The Washington Post 
editorial calling for a Chinese to be banned from Chinese channels to be banned from social media. I thought it was, of course, simultaneously very funny and highly uh, illuminating to see that the actual fact it shows the farce of the claim that the Western media or the West supports uh, free speech. The reason that Russia is being suppressed is because some people might, might agree with it. Uh, that's it. China is somewhat has a somewhat different approach. China, I think, use more uses the situation to explain what are the views of China, not merely on the domestic affairs of China, uh, but on the, on foreign affairs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not really trying to influence in any direct way the political process mm -hmm. uh, within the United States. Um, but I've got no doubt that, that we already have it in my country, in Britain, CGTN was already banned. It's I used to be able to watch CGTN mm -hmm. on my television and, and it's now been banned. When did that happen? So not, it was about a couple of years ago. Oh. Um, yeah, no, 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 I know. I know because we, we, we made there was a campaign against it, mm -hmm. but it was. yeah, yeah. Why? Because. Uh, because it it was gaining a bit of traction, not not enormous traction. I don't exaggerate. Mm -hmm. It wasn't rivaling the BBC in influence or something. But nevertheless, it was gaining some support, and therefore it was banned. And this will be the case. the The West allows freedom of speech, provided it believes that the people who are putting forward views it disagrees with have no influence. Mm -hmm. I always say it to my Chinese friends: if they ban you, take it as a sign of success. <laughs> um, because it's it's more convenient for Western ideology to let you be there and uh, and be powerless. And therefore, that's what they'll do. If you have no influence at all, you'll be allowed to broadcast. If they decide because it works their ideology better, if they decide to ban you, it means that you're having some influence. So it's a bit inconvenient, but treated as a sign of success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. Gaining some influence in policy would be would be positive. It would be nice to see some uh, some results of it at some point. That was author and economist John Ross. John, always great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host Michelle Witte. Continuing our coverage of the dramatic leak, I'm calling it a dramatic leak oh, yeah. uh, from the U.S. Supreme Court and its apparent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, we'd like to discuss the political fallout from such a decision. All of the major political watchdogs, including Politico, The Washington Post, The Cook Political Report, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, all predict that the Republicans will win a solid majority in the House of Representatives in November and would win a slim majority in the U.S. Senate. But the Roe decision could embolden Democrats now. It could cause an increase in Democratic turnout. Uh, it could swing Republicans, even, uh, I should say, independents, even Republicans. Mm -hmm maybe even change the outcome of some of those elections. We don't know. Do you want to hear the latest on, uh, oh. did you see this? It, the Roberts has confirmed that that was a, the was draft. A leak. It was really, the, yep. it was really. It was a legitimate document. 
Yep, and says he is uh, wants an inquiry into how it came to be leaked. I have to say, uh, this is Sam Sanders, who is apparently a former former NPR host. I haven't heard of him, but I appreciated his take. One thing I'll say about Politico: they don't hold vital reporting hostage until a book release. Ooh, now take that, ouch. Bob Woodward in the New York Times. Uh, take that. Ooh, was there someone at the wow. post who recently sat on yeah, something? Yeah, it was for a long time? Uh, Dr. Bricks. Yep, yep, yep. Burks. Burks, Burks, yes. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Wow, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, the Los Angeles Times uh, is also saying that uh, Chief Justice Roberts is furious about this. He's embarrassed by it uh, because it's a first draft. And as we said earlier, there could be three more drafts before they come up with, you know, the language and the final lineup on this vote. So, uh, yeah, you don't really hear about leaks coming out of the Supreme Court. And earlier today, he called it a betrayal. So pretty serious stuff. And we also have an update. I just had not remembered when this ruling was supposed to be issued, but it's supposed to be by the end of June or early July. Yeah. So I guess we can say in a, in a couple of months. Yeah, we'll see. There's been some other uh, some other news. Amazon lost that vote. Uh, yesterday at the second Staten Island Good. warehouse. Good. Uh, oh, no, Amazon won. Sorry. Uh, oh, the Amazon, Amazon labor won. union lost. So, yeah, the, the labor union, union lost. The union lost the oh, vote. Oh, I'm shocked. Lost the vote pretty, pretty solidly. Oh. You know, I mean, this sort of, I, I don't, I'm like, the fact that they won one victory, still, they're still going up against yeah. a pretty yeah. powerful, you know, the, yeah. the biggest, company biggest company in, in the, the world. world, one of the, you know, most powerful and wealthy companies in the world. So yeah. I don't think it's necessarily reason to despair. This is more par for the course. But also, interestingly, Chris Smalls, who's president of that union, uh, has said he's coming to the White House this week. Wow. So that could be very interesting. Wow. Um, okay, good. good I don't know Chris. if this is just the White House trying to sort of cash in on uh, on the new popularity of Chris Smalls after two years of very hard work organizing this labor union and getting that victory. Um, or if who knows, maybe they want to talk about the PRO Act. Maybe they want to talk about organizing. Maybe they want to. Uh, clearly, I think they're going to they at least want the appearance of offering some support uh, to this new union. Right. I think Biden is pretty clearly, you know, yeah. once the victory was won, he was able to say, Amazon, we're, we're coming for you. So you this know, there was a, part of that. There was a piece in The New York Times today, too, saying that Amazon is so rich and Jeff Bezos is so rich that even if the company were to lose at the NLRB, uh, they could tie the union up in the courts for years. And even if they lose in the courts, it would at least delay the unionization of these uh, warehouses I mean, for this, years. This is the problem with that amount of money and the problem with our system of, you know, with the expense uh, that yeah. our system of justice uh, requires people to to lay out, but also with you know the the punishable by a fine uh, phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. Which just means as someone has described, just means legal if you're rich, yes. right? You know right. the the fines that they might incur are are just absolutely meaningless, right? And so you cannot pretend, and this is for the you know the finance industry as well. You simply can't pretend that some of these fines are going to influence behavior at all. Not when there is so much more to be gained yep. from doing this, you know, supposedly illegal activity than there is to be lost by facing the punishment for it. 
Michelle, I got to tell you, I've already received four fundraising emails today from uh, pro-choice organizations saying we need to act now. It's like, no, you needed to act 10 years ago. This is I am I am very interested in in this conversation that we're going to have in a couple of minutes with our, our final guest about, you know, I think uh, I think the timing of this leak could be a very could be a very big short term gift to Democrats. And I think, of course, they are going to fundraise uh, on it. Absolutely. But I do not know. I don't I'm not sure it will be. I think it could be. It all depends on on whether people have have given up on that party already or whether they give up on it after this after this round of midterms. Yes, because it really is hard to see, uh, you know, how. I don't know how many times you can disappoint people and and come back and say, give us another chance. Now we're really going to do it. Don't worry. If you just vote hard enough, we'll have enough people have 100 percent of 100 percent Democrats in the House and in the Senate and in the presidency. And then maybe we can do one of these things that you say you want us to do. And and maybe not. Yeah. And maybe not. You know, uh, Bruce Fine, the the constitutional attorney that we have on the show every once in a while, uh, says that that. The spiral downward uh, politically uh, began in 1995 with the rise of Newt Gingrich to the speakership in the House. Mm -hmm. That time was before 1995 where anybody could sponsor a bill and it would be heard at least in subcommittee, maybe in committee. Good ideas had a way of bubbling to the top. But Newt Gingrich decided to to emasculate the House Rules Committee, which is where all legislation had to to go for its final uh, stamp of approval, and changed it so that every piece of legislation had to go through him as the Speaker of the House. It got even tougher when Nancy Pelosi became the Speaker of the House. Now it doesn't have to just go through the Speaker's office. Legislation, I mean, it has to go through the speaker herself. Mm. And there's a very important Democratic congressman, a committee chairman who uh, Bruce was writing, you know, why, why haven't you done anything on X, Y, Z issue? And the response was, and I was there in the office. I heard it with my own ears. He said, Bruce, I really wanted to. But Nancy said I couldn't. That's what it comes down to. And so, you know, we're you and I are yelling this morning about abortion, that the the Democrats have had their chance repeatedly over the years to codify this. And they haven't. And the reason they haven't is because we have power hungry, very influential and powerful people who just won't allow it to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what we've come down to. Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking of some of those people, can I squeeze in my one last uh, Met Gala story that I thought was was pretty funny? Please. So Hillary Hillary Clinton also went to the the Met Gala. It was apparently her first time at the event, uh, and she was wearing a just a maroon dress, just a perfectly serviceable satin maroon dress. It didn't is, have like lettering stenciled nope, on the back or anything. Nope, it did not. It was just a perfectly fine, perfectly fine dress. She looked perfect. I'm not, you know, I, I dislike Hillary Clinton pretty strongly, uh, but whatever. She she was fine, but she was interviewed about it. And I mean, again, it's like just wear the wear your damn dress. You no, know, then the interview she has to say, oh well, I wanted I wanted to wear something that you know would. Uh, 
uh, evoke and honor uh, Sojourner Truth and oh, Sacagawea and Eleanor Roosevelt and a couple other names. And it's just like there is it's just a just a maroon dress. I don't know how you could tell me that all of these also very sort of disparate historical personalities that are united just by being, uh, you know, w- women whose names we know who were not mass murderers. Right. Uh, somehow all, all united again in this maroon dress. I guess we're supposed to call it Bordeaux colored, which is fine. But just again, it's just it's it's comedy. You know, the it idea that that's I mean, at least at least Eric Adams and, and AOC, when she wore her Ethan Rich dress, at least the political message like was explicit. Yes. However effective you think it might be and, you know, a- appropriate it is to to carry that message as an invitee into this, you know, extremely posh gathering. But like this is not even a message. Just wear it. I have a a maroon t-shirt. You were wearing one today. I, I am wearing one you, today, but I have another one that's actually dyed in in uh, in Bordeaux wine. And on the back it says, friends don't let friends drink white Zinfandel. <laughs> People, there is no such thing as white Zinfandel. The Zinfandel grape is a red grape. So don't buy it. The other thing I noticed today, John, um, the Wall Street Journal had a story about... Um, I caught my eye because I thought, come on, guys, this is this is a little much. Uh, It's a celebration of all the student loan debt carriers who continued paying when the debt was paused. And because it's in the Wall Street Journal, I think you have to take it in in at least some ways as an effort to go like, see, uh-huh. other people are making financial decisions that are allowing them to pay off the debt. You know, you how how dare you lazies want to get out from under, you know. $200,000 of debt from when you were 25 before you're 85. Right. Um, but so it was, it was sort of an interesting story, you know, because of course interest stopped accruing. Yes. So for that two years, you could actually pay some money on, on the principal. And in a way, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to say that I, I think the wall street journal was trying to hide this or something, but in a way it just sort of illuminates how, how awful the, some of these loan terms are. Right. That only if if you look, if you pause the interest for some people, it becomes a manageable amount to to pay off. Yeah. You know, but with the interest, then you're just sort of paying it for the rest of your life. When I graduated from college, um, I had twenty five thousand dollars in student loans that I had to repay. And, you know, twenty five thousand dollars in 1988 was daunting. Um, And it took me a full 10 years to pay that off. I can't imagine having to pay 10 times that amount. Yeah. Being 22 years old or 24 years old and having to pay 10 times that amount. I mean, that's that's the median home price in yeah. in most uh most cities in America. Yeah. I I I don't know how people do it. No, it's it's outrageous. And so it, you know, sort of describes what what these people went through in order to pay off, you know, pay off their loans or pay off big chunks of their loans. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just it really illuminates what how outrageous the system is. All right, it John, really what do you is. say we take a quick break and yep. then come back and talk a little bit more uh, and hopefully get into uh, the the great battle in Florida that I can't think of a rhyme for swamp. The Stomp in the Swamp, DeSantis versus Disney. We'll get into it. I hope when we come back. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Woody. As we told you before we were leaving for the break, um, you know, there have been these developments in Florida over the last week or two that have been actually quite dramatic. So it started with this terrible uh, don't say gay bill. Um, and you know how so many, so many legislators across America are just parrots of, you know, what they see elsewhere. They saw this don't say gay. They thought it was great. Or getting legislation from some of the organizations that write it for them and pass it to them. I jump you in the gun the here. Yeah, right out of I mean, mouth. there are organizations that are doing that. Yes. Hey, let us let us, you know, let's parboil this this law for you. Here's what we want. Yes. And it's a big tobacco lobby groups does that. What's the name of the big one? I'll look it up while you. Well, you know, one of the things I learned on Capitol Hill when I was working there was that a lot of members of Congress are just idiots. They're just not very bright. And so they don't write their own legislation and they staff their offices with people in their early 20s. They pay them barely enough to put food on their tables. And it's the lobbyists that write the laws. And the I found the that, one I was thinking of, the please. American Legislative, Legislative Exchange Council, uh, which has connections to, I remember I researched this for a story a while back, has connections to the tobacco industry, uh, has connections to a, a couple of other, you know, industry lobby groups that sure. want to make sure that uh, the, the, the United States remains safe for dangerous products. Unbelievable. And, you know, we see this similarly with, you know, the the family, what's it called? Council, the the. Yeah, you focus know on I'm, the family. Yeah, the, yeah focus yeah, on yeah. the family is another one. Liberty University, they have uh, something called the Liberty Law Outreach Program or something like that, where they'll they'll come up with anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-woman legislation, and then just shop it around. Maybe just the family council. Maybe family, it's the family research council. Family research council. Thank you. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, they'll they'll shop this legislation around, and it turns into things like the Don't Say Gay Bill. Well, you know, Disney is an incredibly gay-friendly um, company. I've got, I've got a great friend, one of my best friends in, in my life. We've been friends since we were five. We went to the MC, uh, YMCA together to learn how to swim when we were five, and we've been friends ever since. Um, he's married to a guy who is uh, an animator at Disney, and He's quite an accomplished animator, like the films that he's worked on have won Academy Awards and he could go somewhere else and make more money. He could go to to Canada, for example, and make more money. But he chooses to remain at Disney because they are so gay friendly that it's a quality of life issue. It's all about equality and, you know, all the things that are important to people like us. So. Uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida, uh, happy to sign this legislation. He signs it into law and Disney says, wait, wait a minute. We object to this. You know, this is this is really in opposition to to everything that Disney stands for. And. Uh, and the response was, uh, mind your own business or we're going to take your your tax uh, concessions. And Disney continued to complain about the legislation. And sure enough, the governor um, decided to revoke their their tax concessions. Now, these aren't just tax breaks that that any company would get 
um, when they when they want to establish a new presence in because the state. Because it also involves some outlay on the part of Disney, right? Yeah. Yes. Big time. So Disney in the late 1960s bought this enormous tract tract of land outside Orlando, uh, Florida, to build all of the Disney theme parks there. And what they negotiated with the state was what essentially comes down to a principality, right? And they have Disney has their own uh, police force. Uh, they have their own um, hospital. There's a town. Uh, it's like they're independent of the state of of Florida. And another thing, too, is that Disney was able to negotiate a deal whereby the one billion dollar bond that was floated in. And I think it was 1970 to uh, to help to build things like a sewage treatment plant and to add to the electrical grid and all these big ticket items, upgrade Orlando Airport. In the event that Disney leaves the state, they can just walk away from repayment of that bond, right? And then the state has to pay the bond, whatever's left on the billion. So now what? Now they've got this awful legislation, and then you have Governor Kemp, of Georgia and this idiot Governor Abbott of Texas saying, well, we might disagree with you on politics, but we're not going to pass this don't say gay legislation. And if you want to relocate Disney World to Georgia or to Florida, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Georgia or to Texas, we're happy to to welcome you. Wow. Yeah. So that now, be, now what happens? That would be fun. I mean, it's hard to imagine that happening. But hey, things that are hard to imagine happen all the time <laughs> these days. Uh, but, you know, the, a potential fight between Republicans in Georgia and uh, and Florida or Texas and Florida. Would be, I, I would love to watch would be that. Pretty funny. And you are, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before in the context of um, the limitations of any state level solutions for health care, because, you know, if you are a state and you are left holding the bag, you really are left holding the bag. You can't make more money. No, it, it's why, you know, it sounds nice to pass, you know, single payer health care programs in, in states. But, you know, uh, you, you do run up against costs that the federal government you know, won't have to deal with simply because they have the power yeah. to, to create more money. They have a power to, to fund things in a different way. So, yeah, I mean. Yeah. Well, we have our guest now. Okay. She's yeah. Uh, Donna Davies uh, is a political consultant, political organizer and co-founder of Black Lives Matter Tampa. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Afternoon. Good afternoon. afternoon. Donna, we were talking a moment ago um, just between the two of us uh, here about this uh, Supreme Court decision 50 or well, it's we don't know if it's a decision yet. The Supreme Court uh, story opinion, Uh, 50 years of precedent and reproductive rights. It looks like could go right out the window if what we're reading today is true. In the meantime, Democrats are looking at some pretty serious political losses in the upcoming midterms. At least they were until this morning. Do you think that the Supreme Court decision is enough to energize Democrats and Democratic leaning independents to go to the polls in November and perhaps change what so far looks like it would be a Republican wave in the midterms? You know, I think the people that you want to target, the people that aren't already up in arms about this, right? Yeah. So you, you think of your, uh, the, the Karen segment of the population, this middle-class white woman who have the time and energy 
to be concerned about the erosion of civil rights in the reproductive rights category. Uh, those women are the ones who are, uh, you know, hands off my body. They're already organizing. They're already calling me uh, down in Florida, and I'm not even in Florida right now. <laughs> Georgia, you know, to make sure that these uh, congressional seats are held. Um, and every time I come on this show, I talk about the awful choices Dems make uh, regarding effective organizing strategies and yeah. tactics. And, and I think until we decide that in Florida and a lot of these states that are on the razor's edge, that until we decide that we can collaborate and execute effectively, until we decide to do that, this fallout, like that, what we're seeing here, this threat will continue. And I don't think that's just true in Florida. And so, you know, we're in the middle of some pretty fierce culture wars. And what needs to be said out loud, and I'm going to say it, is half of the country wants this. Yeah. That's how we got the party that we had in power that stacked the Supreme Court against progress. Right. And we really should be talking about how we got here. Yeah. And the other thing is, as terrible as the prospect of Roe v. Wade overturning is, it's a symptom of a much larger, nastier, and what I think will be a more enduring problem is that the erosion of civil liberties uh, is running concurrent with uh, the rise of Republican power in this country, which we're staring down the barrel of, of a generation of this. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we were talking before the show started that, that today is uh, International Freedom of the Press Day. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, today's International Freedom of the Press Day. And um, this revelation from the Supreme Court has been met with, with shock and, and kudos for the whistleblower who released the information. And John Roberts is furious and says he feels betrayed. But isn't this a case where, where we need more information like this. We need for more people to come forward and tell us what our government is doing in our name. This is exactly what what Julian Assange should be celebrated for, is it not? I think so. I think anytime you pull back, you know, a democracy uh, dies in the dark. Isn't that what the New York Times says? That's right. No, no, that's the Washington Post. Yeah, the Washington Post. Oh gosh, Bezos owns it. That's another show. Uh, like, we, the best is trending is sunlight, uh, and this is a gift to Democrats, I feel. It gives uh, Dems a uh, several-month head start yeah. uh, in using this to whip up that froth. But my only issue with that, and I'll say it again, is who exactly is getting excited about this? Uh, is it the, the people who are voting Democrat and the people who are voting for reproductive rights always are already mobilized and prepared to respond to this and to be at the polls in November. The people who don't care about this and who don't think this is a problem uh, are not necessarily going to be motivated. That's my prediction. I don't think you get people who aren't already in the fray to come to the fray for this. Let's, uh, let's talk about Florida specifically and this don't say gay law. This law was a natural next step, it seems to me, in Florida's move, long-term move to the political right. It used to be, um, it used to be a blue state. It was a purple state for a while. It went back and forth. Now it's pretty reliably red. But like so many right-wing initiatives, state leaders were were shocked then when Disney 
reacted badly to it. Now the state has withdrawn Disney's tax breaks they've, uh, that they had negotiated decades ago back in the early 1970s, or really the late 1960s. Um, and the company is talking publicly about alternatives to Florida. What can you tell us about the status of, of Don't Say Gay? What exactly does it do? And what's going on with Disney? Okay, so let's talk about Disney first, because okay. I think that's the big deal there. And I don't think a lot of people have clarity about where Disney has been in the state of Florida. Uh, a few years back, uh, one of our state legislators, Lauren Book, um, had a great anti-trafficking bill, lots of trafficking stuff going on in Florida. Uh, and she had marshaled this, uh, this legislation through, and they were right on the cusp of passing it. And the biggest thing about that legislation was it allowed uh, hotels uh, to check rooms daily, right, uh, which wouldn't allow this tor- sort of uh, trafficking business to roost in some of these hotels. Sure. Now, it was adamantly against it. And Lauren Book, at the end, capitulated uh, to Disney and took key pieces that would have really turned that trafficking on its, uh, on its ear out of that legislation and made it really weak. Um, and so, and then the other thing you should know about Disney is that every single legislator that supported the Don't Say Gay bill received money from Disney. Wow. Right? So you got to know that in order to understand why Disney needed to come out so strong when they took a hit for this. It started in Florida and just started to seep outside of the region. Hey, have you heard what Disney did? Right? Have you heard this kind of stuff that Disney gets into? Because we hear from Abigail Disney, who's very progressive. Yes. Which people don't need any more tax breaks, but she's out there. But we're, this is not the Disney we're hearing from in Florida. As a matter of fact, with BLM and a lot of the things that go on with police in Florida, and we're going to get to Val Deming here, and we'll, we'll connect all of this together. Mm-hmm. Uh, Disney suppresses a lot of its uh, police brutality and police misconduct stories. So Disney's hands aren't clean here. D- d- police brutality on the, on the part of Disney cops? No, not on the part of Disney cops, but Disney cops are another story. That's okay. another story entirely. Uh-huh. But Disney suppressing, you know, protecting the mouse and the brand and wanting to keep uh, stories uh, that are unsavory and frightening to the potential tourists right. um, out of the public eye. And so these issues have a tendency to get swept under the rug, and that has a lot to do with how Disney operates in the Orlando counties, right? I see. Knowing that Disney's hands aren't clean, it was really difficult for me uh, to feel bad for them when they lost this tax status that goes all the way back to the 60s, right, and 70s. And so they basically have these little town down there, celebration, and they basically do what they want to do. They've got their own fire departments and everything. And so they're going to lose all of that now. And them talking publicly about um, moving from Florida, it's an entire it's like taking, it's like saying, okay, Miami's not going to be in the South. Right, right, right. Tallahassee and Jacksonville. Okay, not really going to happen, right? Um, what Disney should do is they should give the Democrats and other groups money uh, to get DeSantis out of Florida so that we can reclaim Florida as a state that is approaching plurality and can be a leader, uh, for progressive leader for the rest of the country. But are they going to do that? Or are they just going to whine and hope everybody feels sorry for the mouse? 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I hate to say that we only have about I think thirty seconds yeah, left. I think we have to leave it there. Yeah. John. Uh, it's primary day. Did you want to remind our? Um, yes. Primary day today in Ohio and Indiana. We'll have a full readout for you tomorrow uh, on these important races. And goodness knows there are lots of other primaries uh, stacked up through the rest of the spring and into the summer. So we'll have a lot of great coverage. And thanks again so much to Donna Davis, political consultant, political organizer, and co-founder of Black Lives Matter at Tampa. Thanks to you, Donna. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And on uh, behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, we'll see you tomorrow. Bye. <laughs>